the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, I had to do something today that not only put me in a little bit of a, of a mood, but I got to tell you, I think it's our new it's our new reality now. Uh, I left my house oh. driving to the station. Mm-hmm. Van on empty. And your bank account went all the way down to zero. <laughs> van van on empty. The, the family van. Uh-oh. So I stopped at the gas station. $74.52 later. I had a full gas tank, Aubrey. I filled three different cars this weekend. And Brian. it's like I have to get a third job now. Uh, and a lot of us are feeling this pain uh, right now. And let me add to the pain. The, the Everyone's telling us those prices are going to keep going up maybe every day this week. Prices are still you going up. You and I up. are going to have to start like bicycling or caravanning, <laughs> carpooling to work or something, Brian. This so is crazy. I, let me ask it real fast. How in reality will this affect your, so you got inflation with other yeah. stuff, groceries yeah. and stuff, but this, uh, you know, gas prices. So a lot of it has to do with what's mm-hmm. going on in the Ukraine and in Russia, mm-hmm. but there's other factors going into this as well. Mm-hmm. You know, supply and demand. Yep. Uh, how do these sorts of things actually affect you? Like you and I were talking off air. Mm-hmm. I still have to drive places. Like I feel like yeah. we live in the suburbs where you got to drive. Yeah. Uh, so is it just kind of budget for it and just kind of take it? Or what do you do if it's $5 this oh, weekend? I mean, this is hard because Kevin and I do have a gas budget and like we can't go over it. It is what it is. So I guess we're going to have to do a lot of I mean, thankfully, he lives near where the church office is. We live near where the church office is and where the church is. So we're going to have to get more creative about walking, sharing the car, making meaningful decisions about when and where and how we're going places I mean, you still have to be where you have to be. Like right. we're at the studio today, yep. but I. But that is a ghastly amount of money that not a lot of Americans can afford. Frankly, it's, it's really, really difficult. And of course, it was like a, you know, timing is everything. About a month ago, we added a third car to our family. Oh, brutal, <laughs> so brutal. That's fun. So we feel the pain for those of you out mm-hmm. there. And I, I think there's going to be lots of conversations going forward, Aubrey, about how do you not live consumed by the worries of needing yeah, to fill up the gas yeah. tank again of needing to pay. I went to the grocery store today and everything costs more. Everything costs more everywhere. Mm. And that's a very real problem yeah. for people, yeah, uh, us, but that's a really big problem for all sorts of people. Uh, and that's, that can cause here. Let me just ask you, I, I get anxious about that. That oh. causes great anxiety in me. How about you? Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we both talk about this, Brian, but like we both live on pastor money. So yep. anytime there's any type of inflation or major change like this, it is painful. Yep. It's, it means sacrifice. It means being creative. It means like 
uh, scrimping and saving and going into places in your budget you don't want to. And like Kevin and I are pretty tight about our family budget. And so to see changes like this, it I mean, it, it does impact yeah. our wallet and our day to day life. I'm not going to lie. And that's like, OK, Lord, you're our provider. Yes, I'm trusting yes. you, you know. So we hear you out there. We hear you. And uh, it is hard times. And obviously the big story out there still remains the the war going on in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, every day we go, I don't know what it's going to hold. Uh, and you and I, we're going to get to spend some time later on and then about 20 minutes or so, 15 minutes with David French, friend of ours. Yeah. Uh, but he's coming on because he's brilliant yeah, about he's this sort of stuff. He's written so mm-hmm. much of this stuff. And so, Aubrey, I'm, I'm going to give you just a, a little uh, kind of window. I'm going to ask David, and we're just going to start by going, David, what should I be thinking right now? Mm. Help me understand what's going on. He'll be great. And for uh, that. yeah, let me encourage everybody to stay with us. Uh, we're going to spend some time with David French. But uh, I don't want to talk about what's going on over there, but I want to continue highlighting the impact of what's going on over in the Ukraine. And there's millions of ways to do that right now, different stories. Yeah. But CNN ran a report, Arwa Damon. Uh, about the dangerous effort to evacuate sick children who spend most of their time in the hospital. They're, they're in Ukraine, in harm's way, and then need to get out. And what do you do in those situations in war? Uh, it's heartbreaking. Let's listen to just some of this report. A train speeds through the darkness and crosses the Ukrainian border into Poland. Most of these children are from hospices in and around Kharkiv. It had the best palliative care for children in Ukraine. Now, one of the areas most intensely bombarded. The carriage is filled with the sort of emotion that is too intense, too incomprehensible for words. But it is also filled with so much love. Love among strangers, seen in the tenderness of the touch of the medical team. The whispered words of, you are safe now. Love of a mother who will dig up superhuman strength just to keep her child safe. Hi, Victoria. Hi. Oh, look at that smile. Victoria, who has cerebral palsy, can't sit up. Her mother, Ira, doesn't know what to say. She has so much pain in her soul, her tears just won't stop. They had to get closer to the border with Poland before this humanitarian train could pick them up. Ira carried Victoria for three days, through the panic of others trying to flee, trained so packed she could not even put her down. Until now. So just, Aubrey, you can get lost in the events of what's going on right now. But the humanity of what's going on is really what we want to continue to point out. There's there's, uh, heroic stuff going on over there. There's just dark stuff. Uh, but these are kids who are part who are in the hospital oh, who need to be moved. Yeah. And you don't think about that. You go, well, what are they going to do? What, right. If you're a parent in that situation, what do you do? I, I want to make sure people realize just the humanity of what's going on right there. So you're a mom. You hear that story. Oh, you hear that report. It is gut wrenching. Oh, isn't it? I, I cannot imagine being one of those mamas having to go on a train with her child who's in the hospital or in hospice in some situations and having to. I mean, one, you're you're fleeing your country already. So pain. You're having to leave the rest of your family behind pain. A lot, mm-hmm. In a lot of these situations, the husbands have put their wives and children on a train pain, mm-hmm. like not knowing the future pain. And then. Having been moved from the medical care that you've been kind of feeling safe in pain, worried for, I mean, I, 
my mama's heart goes out to those moms and and he, we heard the audio watching the video of it is so devastating yeah. that all I mean, I don't know what to do, Brian, except pray Amen. and and ask and trust that the Lord loves little children more than we could possibly could and that he's taking care of these I kids. I think that's the constant refrain we want to share with you, at least from our perspective on this show. It's be informed, be know what's going on, uh, but be prayerful. The yeah. church, we must be prayerful. We can look for ways to reach out and give support and money, but at the very least, be prayerful. Mm-hmm. Well, coming up next, we're going to continue talking about the Ukraine with our friend David French. He's going to come on for a bit of an extended chat to, to help us understand what's going on over yeah. there. How can we be praying? Uh, what is the best case and the worst case scenario when the, uh, as this plays out? We're going to spend some time with David French next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and we are so glad as, Aubrey, you and I talk about the Ukraine right now and what's Mm -hmm. going on over there. Sometimes I feel way out over my skis, like trying to even process for myself, let alone talk on a radio show about it. Uh, And so as we discuss that, there's nobody that I wanted to have on more than our friend David French. David is the senior editor at The Dispatch. Uh, and writes often about what's going on in Ukraine and other things. So, David, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. And, David, as I kind of teased out there, uh, I watch the news. We're all trying to follow what's going on. I hear, you know, the Ukraine people are, are heroically defending their land, but then I hear the next commentator say, uh, but it's just a matter of time before mm-hmm. Russia overtakes them. And I don't really know what to think. And so, for others out there like me, like right now, like at this moment, how should we be processing what's going on in the Ukraine right now and what to think about it? Well, yeah. So there's a couple of, you know, sort of several strands at once. I mean, just from the purely military standpoint, the way to think about it is that Russia made a colossal miscalculation to start this war mm. and has been paying for it every day since. And mm-hmm. that that miscalculation was, they thought that they were going to do an attack on a grander scale than they did in 2014 when they landed you know, the Little Green Men small force and took over Crimea. They have a big force, but they, they thought that they were going to essentially do a kind of really quick, um, for lack of a better term, decapitation strike. In mm-hmm. other words, that they would bring elite forces in, um, signal that they were invading the country, fire, you know, fire missiles. And they expected Ukraine to just fold and yeah. the Zelensky government to collapse, Ukraine to fold, and then to essentially that it would be a cakewalk. And instead what happened is they they launched with this relatively modest military operation and, and kind of walked straight into the teeth of the Ukrainian military that wasn't going to fold. And they've been paying for it ever since. And had Russia believed that the Ukrainian military would fight as hard as it did, a, I wonder if they would have attacked at all. Hmm. And B, if if they attacked, they would have done it totally differently. They hmm. would have they would have shelled and bombarded Ukraine for weeks before they crossed the border. I mean, think about when we had Desert Storm yeah. you know, thirty years yeah. ago. Uh, everyone remembers the the land war was one hundred hours, but that was preceded by six weeks of bombing of of Iraqi positions. So the Iraqi army had been seriously damaged before we started attacking it on the ground. And if the Russians knew the Ukrainians were going to put up a fight like this, 
you know, they would have used their overwhelming advantage in artillery to just grind down the Ukrainian army before they attacked. But mm. they just went ahead and attacked. Mm. And that's why, that's one of the main reasons that and lack of training and poor performance of some of their equipment is one of the main reasons why they're bogged down right now, at least in the north. In the south, they're making a lot more gains. But um, that's that's the military, kind of a very big picture as to why we are where we are on the military side of things. Mm. Mm. Oh, so it's it's helpful, David, to hear you un- unpack this so succinctly for us. Um, I guess it maybe was last week or the week before last you wrote about Zelensky and obviously the world has been, you know, just watching him be like a modern day hero right now. Yes. I I wonder from your perspective, why do you think his stand has resonated so deeply with the watching world? Yeah, well, you know, I think there's a couple of things happening at once. One, we can't discount how unexpected it is. Yeah. This is a guy who had not distinguished himself as a great leader on the world stage. He came from the world of entertainment. He, he, he won Ukrainian dancing with stars. (laughs) You know, he was, some people had called him the Ukrainian John Stewart. He had played the president of Ukraine. Um, I mean, on, on television, this was just an unlikely president. Hmm. And then, you know, there are a lot of critiques, legitimate critiques about how he prepared the Ukrainian people and military before the attack. Um, they wondered if he mobilized reserves too late. I mean, it's always a very tricky decision for a lot of complicated reasons. But So that he had a lot of armchair quarterbacks in the run-up to the invasion. But then as soon as the invasion kicks off, he's leading in a way that in a very particular way that echoes in history as particularly inspiring. And that is, he isn't just leading the people, he's with the people. Mm. In other words, like Churchill during the Blitz, he is, you know, Churchill during the Blitz, and he would stand on the roof when the air raid warning sirens would go off sometimes. Uh, You know, Washington in the revolution, you know, he he exposed himself to British fire. He, you know, he led from the front. He led uh, uh, by example in, in key moments. And so that's a powerful form of leadership. And then the other thing is he's, he is presenting sort of in, in this indomitable will. In other words, no surrender, no retreat, no surrendering. So even as Ukrainian forces have had to fall back just because of the overwhelming Russian firepower, they're fighting for every inch of ground. And, and so it's really he's connecting with this power, this style of leadership that says, I don't just lead you. I'm with you. Mm. And that has such incredible moral power to it. Yeah, it does. It really does. And David, this might be a bit of a leading question, but um, when I hear you talk about Zelensky, I get fired up, right? That's the type of leader we want to follow. Yet we don't see any of our leaders like that in our own country. And I wonder if a, you agree with that. And why do you think that is, if that's the type of leader that inspires us and that we want to follow, is that only a wartime thing or is it just something about our structure that we don't see leaders like that in our own, in our own country? Well, you know, we have seen at very key moments in American history, we have seen leaders like this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't know someone has greatness in them until the moment is thrust upon them. I mean, if you think about Lincoln, when he was elected, there was no confidence that this guy was a heroic, historic leader. Yeah. Uh, just zero confidence. And, you know, I grew up in the age 
of Reagan. And when Reagan was sworn in, and I'm a, you know, I'm a old school, like Reagan Republican kind of guy. Mm -hmm. In 1981, a lot of people thought this guy's overmatched. He just isn't up for this. And we had huge challenges back then. And yet he, he was able to rise to the occasion. And, and, you know, by the end of his presidency and the George H.W. Bush presidency, America was just in a fundamentally transformed place in the world than it was in 1981. Mm -hmm. And, so we've had this in the past, but I'm, I'm afraid that for right now, we don't have those people on the horizon. Mm. And, and part of the reason for that is the incentives that we've created and the hyperpolarization that we've created have made where the path, to, the path to prominence is in this very petty kind of partisan combat. Mm. And, and we've really put a premium on the ability to sort of own the other side or dominate the other side. Um, and, and that does not necessarily breed the best qualities in leadership. Right. right. And, and, you know, cause what you're doing is you're, you're seeking a partisan pugilist instead of a, a leader of a nation. And the other thing is we've really discounted. And here's something that I think is super important in the American system. Um, the head of government, you know, the head of the executive branch is also the head of state. In other words, sort of the figurehead of the nation. And many of our best presidents have really been able to use that bully pulpit to unite in key moments and key times. Um, you know, you think about, uh, you know, when, uh, when the, challenge, the Challenger space shuttle mm -hmm. disaster and Reagan is speaking or when Obama, who, um, you know, at the at the, you know, in the church and the mother manual, um, mm -hmm. uh, funeral where he sings amazing grace mm -hmm. when, you know, the, you have these moments where a political figure sort of transcends the partisanship and, and speaks sort of for the grief of a country or for the hopes of a country. And, you know, that, that is kind of a quality you see in Zelensky right now and yeah. it's a quality that's been missing mm. uh in recent years that's in right. the united states of america that's right. and do you have any thoughts david on <laughs> how will that i mean does the pendulum just have to swing so far in one direction that we'll finally say oh we do want honorable leaders again or what <laughs> is it going to take for us to begin to yeah. want want a you know not an objectively evil person as a leader <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's a little, you know, that's a little gross, but you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Well, you know, the, the, the issue is there is a long, and I believe we've talked about this before, that there is a majority of Americans who actually are deeply discontent with this very vicious partisan back and forth and status quo, but they've responded to that discontent by just retreating sort of by leaving mm. politics to the mm. partisans. And you know when it'll change is when that majority of Americans who set up steps forward. Yeah. And, and they step forward in a constructive way that says, look, we are sick of this partisan pugilism, these nonstop Twitter wars. We're just sick of it. Yeah. And what we want are, what we want is are people who actually have regard for their fellow citizens, yes. not contempt, mm. and who actually are flexible enough to compromise and inspirational enough to try to lead by appealing to the better angel, angels of our nature rather mm. than by appealing to raw fear. Yeah. And there's a hunger out there. I mean, mm. I've, you know, I've been out and speaking since sort of the, the, uh, since the vaccine era, I've been out on the road and speaking a great deal more. 
And there is a hunger out there for a different vision. But the problem is, in many ways, the sort of the activist core of American, daily American political engagement is still almost entirely captured by the hyper-partisan, pugilistic voices. Yeah. And then, David, if Zelensky is the hero of this so far, the, obviously the villain, and that's probably too yeah. late of a word, is Putin. And you wrote just recently, uh, there will always be Vladimir Putins in our midst, which is sad but true. And it was a wonderful article. But just speak to that. Why will there always be Vladimir Putins in our midst? Yeah. You know, one of the reasons this in this goes back, actually, you know, it's not just Vladimir Putin. It's not just Napoleon Bonaparte. It's not just any number of leaders that you can look to throughout history who, at least for a time, are able to unite nations and empires through glory and conquest. Um, even goes back to ancient Israel, you know, the, the cry to Samuel, give us a king, give us a king who may fight our battles for us. And the reason is that there's a kind of leader who taps into something that exists in the human heart. And that is this sort of desire for protection, mm-hmm. for one thing. It's not, a, it's not a coincidence that a lot of these leaders will rise in periods of great uncertainty, uh, as Putin did at the end of the Soviet empire when Russia felt very weak. Um, it, they tap into a sense of purpose. You know, Napoleon and the greatness of France, for example, or think of Imperial Germany in World War One and greater Germany and uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is tapping into this Russia as a great power who belongs at the center of the world stage. And then, you know, they also tap into that sense of identity. They, they connect with, they give that people that sense of purpose and, they, and, and belonging. And it's a powerful combination. Yeah, yeah. And, and when that combination is unleashed, and the thing about Putin is similar, although, you know, Napoleon's victories were more dramatic. Um, Putin won a lot of battles, literal battles. He won in Chechnya. He won in Georgia. He won in Crimea. He Mm -hmm. won in Syria. And he just built this sort of reputation, even in the West, of one of the more effective, ruthlessly effective leaders in the world. And that has a kind of a dark charisma to it. Yeah. Mm. And and we've just seen it throughout human history. It just happens all the time. And until we recognize what it connects with and how human beings are vulnerable to the pull of, of power, of glory, of conquest, of sort of the terrible purpose of war, um, we're going to continue to be vulnerable to it. Yeah. Yeah. And David, we're so glad for all the time you spend with us. Let me ask you one more question. With the minute or two we have left here, uh, and again, this is a huge question, but someone like me, we're watching the news every day, trying to figure out um, what to know. What is kind of the best case scenario over the coming weeks and months of this? And uh, tragically, what's the worst case scenario for what we're watching? Yeah. Well, the best case scenario is that we actually see the Ukrainian army um, essentially break the Russian invasion force. I mean, that's it's it's wildly optimistic. It's not as unrealistically optimistic as I would have said 10 days ago, mm. but it's still wildly optimistic. I think the more reasonable outcome is you're going to continue to see Russian gains, including potentially the fall of Kiev, including potentially the fall of Odessa and Kharkiv, and that once you see these Russian gains, at some point Russia will want to negotiate from a position of strength. Mm. And that's 
in my view, sort of the more likely. Um, Zelensky is unlikely to want to negotiate away any sort of concessions. Mm. Um, he's not going to want to negotiate away his capital city. Yeah. Yeah. For example. yeah. Uh, and so then what you might have is a kind of a long running war, just a flat out long running kind of stalemated war. Another possibility, which is I think less likely than it was 10 days ago is that Russia just breaks the back of the Ukrainian military and sweeps to total victory. Um, I think as American arms and European arms are pouring into the Ukrainian military right now, Russia's ability to just dominate the battlefield is diminishing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have to raise the final possibility, which is a desperate Vladimir Putin, either, either through desperation or just the fog and haze and unpredictability of war initiates uh, conflict with NATO. Yeah. And if a conflict with NATO occurs, um, that's quite frankly a terrifying proposition. Right. Uh, yeah. Joe Biden has been very, very, very wise to avoid direct military confrontation with mm-hmm. Russia because mm. the bottom line is Putin has not taken the use of nuclear weapons off the table um, as a response. And I'm going to be writing about this in more detail in this this week. But he's not taking the use of nuclear weapons off the table. And we need to be very clear mm. that we should not assume he's bluffing. Yeah. Mm. Wow. wow. That's really helpful, my friend. Yeah, I know as I watch, I'm trying to figure out what is actually happening and what's not. So I'm really grateful for you. Again, David French, senior editor at The Dispatch. You can find his uh, blog post at The French Press. He's writing a lot about what's going on over in the Ukraine, helping us understand. David, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it, friend. Yeah, thanks, David. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Big anniversary today. Ready for it? Uh, Yeah, ready. Let's go. Two years ago today. I know what you're going to say. March the 7th, 2020. This isn't when all of our lives shut down, but this is when the first major event. It's South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. It is when the first major event shut down due to COVID. And you might remember that. Not just that one, but that's when the dominoes started, right? Mm-hmm. The NCAA basketball tournament. Our kids got pulled from school, mm-hmm. churches, and away we go. Yes. So there's going to be lots of anniversaries. My kids reminded me it was Friday the 13th of 2020 when uh, schools shut down and everything else shut down, when everything went crazy and pastors were trying to figure out what to do with mm-hmm. our churches. But two years ago today was the first one, South by Southwest in Austin, wow. Texas. Wow, wow. In some ways, Aubrey, it feels like it's been a fast two years. And in some ways, I don't remember <laughs> what it was yeah, like. Yeah, I was just thinking that, that like it feels like a lifetime ago. And then it feels like it was two seconds ago. Doesn't and they it? have said that about COVID time, like how warped it is and was. And it it is wild to think that it's been two years, though, Brian. It is. And so we'll have time to... Uh, reflect a little bit, but let me ask you this. What do you remember mm-hmm. about March of 2020? Because mm-hmm. the world is so different now, mm-hmm. and uh, it's even hard to say right now, like, oh, I was really scared, because then people yeah. are like, why are you scared of... Co-? No, 
I understand what we know now. Yeah. We're, we're wanting to go back in time. Yeah. March of 2020. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's not even from today, but how about when our kids were getting pulled from school, uh-huh. churches, uh-huh. all you didn't know what to believe in the news or what was going on. What do you remember from March of 2020? Yeah. So my my aunt and uncle had just lost their home in the Nashville tornado, which was the week before the world shut down. I don't know if you remember that. No, I, yes. I remember the Nashville tornado. Yes. But I didn't realize it was the week before. Yes. COVID. So Kevin was down there trying to help them just pull out what furniture they come in the house was demolished and their whole neighborhood was so trying to pull furniture and as he's out of town I'm getting phone calls from the church staff going what are we going to do what are we going to do what are we going to do and Ed Setzer's making announcements and our friend Jamie Aitney humanitarian disasters making announcements the churches are making decisions yes so I call Kevin I'm like babe there's a thing and he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so it was. It felt that part felt like a whirlwind to decide to go online. We thought we'd be going online for a week, maybe yeah, two, two at weeks. the time. Two and weeks. then it'd be Easter. And the, and the other thing is, it was almost our birthday. So I also remember Kevin and I ordered in. It was our first like food that we ordered in, which now became practically a way of life. Right. But we ordered Mexican food. We celebrated our birthdays. We thought this was a cute little fun thing to have like a restaurant at home. And again, we're thinking this is short term. Mm-hmm. But then I would say the fear. I mean, I, I can remember because I have an autoimmune disease. And so my I, I'm immunocompromised. And I can remember at one point before we knew what we know now. Right. right. Crying to Kevin thinking if I get COVID, I'm going to die from COVID. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people without we just didn't have all the information there was no sign of a vaccine, like things like that. It was it. And, and then there were things probably, Brian, you did as a church. We we were online every day trying yep. to encourage our yep. people. We were just like in that, like, you know, the disaster. Adrenaline. Yeah, but that's it's wild to think back on. What about you? I remember a couple things. I remember texting with a bunch of pastors. What are you doing? What are you doing? Because you're always mm-hmm. wanting to kind of you want the cover of yeah. like, we're all going online. We're yeah. all not. And I remember texting with particularly Kelly Brady, kind of the guy that I learned under over at Glenelg Bible Church, just go, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And us talking back and forth. So I remember that. And I do remember telling our staff, hey, this is probably like, we'll probably be online two weeks, three weeks. Yeah. And then, you know, hopefully everything's normal by Easter. But yeah. to that that year was the middle of April. I do remember like we were supposed to go on spring break at the end of March mm-hmm. to Florida and being like, can we do that? Can we? And then eventually like, oh. Yeah, no, we can't go yeah. anymore. That being let down. I yeah. actually also have this weird memory. Again, this is going to sound. We have to remember where we were at that point because mm-hmm. what I'm about to say after nine hundred thousand people have died or whatever sounds really callous. But at that point, I remember it being kind of fun. Like we there was shut some down. fun in it. My, yeah, I remember, I remember that too. My son and I watched a Rocky movie every day in that week mm-hmm. for the first like four days. Yeah, and I remember being like. I'm going to remember this forever. Yeah. Hanging out with my son, yeah. watching Rocky movies. The kids were all home. This yeah. is great. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait a minute. Like, this is not going to be two weeks. This is not. And so, yeah. It, so I, I guess what I really feel mm-hmm. right now is like so much has changed. And you can't, regardless of what you now believe about COVID, like it's so politicized now. I sure. Get it. You almost can't even talk about it. So now. many people have died. And and that yeah. is the crazy part to think back Ugh. over the span of two years. Just so many People have died. We'll spend more time reflecting over the coming month. It's amazing that it's been two years. In many ways, uh, everything has changed. I did a I did a class at our church yesterday, and I the number of times I said before COVID versus after wow. COVID, like that is the differentiation. So where were you two years ago? Uh, March of 2020. Mm. It has uh, life changed forever mm. for all of us. 
on that day. It's been a long two years and a quick two years. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we're so thrilled that you're with us today. We've been talking a lot about uh, Ukraine and what's happening there. And this is a different war than what we've seen because of things like cryptocurrency being used, you know, as some of the sanctions. And and there's other things going on now in 2022 that um, we haven't seen in Mm -hmm. other wars. And one of those things is the use of social media. Mm. So where before narratives might be controlled by the powers that be right now, we're seeing people on the ground in the Ukraine sharing what's really going on with video, with audio, with their own stories. And that's kind of telling a a different story about war than we've ever had to experience before. It's really fascinating. I don't think there's anybody doing that more effectively at the moment than President Zelensky of Ukraine. He shot another video today kind of in his office like, hey, I'm still here Mm -hmm. walking around the city like, hey, we're I haven't gone anywhere. Uh, And I don't know what will come of it. There was a video going around today of Putin talking and it looked like he was talking to a bunch of people. But now it looks like he doctored it because at one point it looks like his hand goes through a microphone. If oh, you look really interesting. Closely. So okay. Zelensky kind of mocked him for it today. So mm. my point being Zelensky seems to be harnessing the power of social yeah. media, which I think is going a long way towards the reasoning why he, he's getting this worldwide support. Well, you and I. We wouldn't be seeing what Zelensky's saying or whatever, except you yep. get on Twitter and people are retweeting. Look, That's this right. guy's walking around yep. here. He's here. And you're like, OK. And it's rallying. So I do think you're right. I think the power of social media at a huge worldwide event like a war, mm-hmm. I think that's here to stay. I don't yeah. think there's this, oh, it's way in the distance. Now, the danger's in the distance for us. But Certainly. I do think, you know, it's almost like you picture, God, I hope it doesn't happen but you do picture that if something if Zelensky were to get assassinated, say, mm-hmm. if he were to get killed, mm-hmm. there'd be an outpouring of emotion here. That's right. Because there would. you almost feel like you've gotten to know him yes. from social media. So all yeah. that to say, totally agree with you that social media has kind of changed the landscape right yeah, now. Yeah, it really has. And I think in a in a way that helps us relate to the mm-hmm. stories that feel far away, actually, like put some put some faces and some personhood right. to what's going on there. Well, it's interesting, Brian, because um, I, I don't know if you're a fan of Dancing with the Stars. I'm going to get let you guess. There is one of us in my marriage between my wife and I. One of us is a fan of Dancing with the Stars and one is not. I'm going to let you guess. And your first guess is probably correct. So it's you, obviously. It is not. Um, well, <laughs> well, what your wife may know is there's a, a famous dancer from Dancing with the Stars named Maxim Shmerkovsky. He's Ukrainian. And I know him because... Oh. As a good husband, I have watched some well Dancing done, with the Stars sir. With Well done, sir. Well, he was actually in Ukraine mm-hmm. filming a dance show in Ukraine when Russia invaded. He was able to get out and on his own social media, he's been talking about that experience. He just shared something pretty powerful on Good Morning America that I would love for our listeners to hear. At the time of war, I realized you do what, what you can, right? This was not me trying to publicize the situation this was me trying to cry for help i literally i was just screaming out like look this is what i just saw i just want you to see it whoever you are he's best known to the world as a ballroom dancer on dancing with the stars but for the last week max shmerkovsky has been stuck in ukraine as russian forces closed in you know me i 
not a social media guy at times of some kind of personal difficulty and this is definitely not the time where I would normally would be posting anything on social media but um, I yes I'm here I'm in Kiev uh, contrary to what I probably should have done Smirkovsky had been filming a dance show in Kiev and started documenting what he saw happening around him on social media is the reality that center of Kiev right there honestly I'm getting really emotional I want to go back home. Now, home in the U.S., the 42-year-old is opening up about what he saw for the first time. This is a country, you know, and the country is on, the, on fire. So, you know, it was, very, um, it was very difficult to process for me because it's, you know, we're used to, you know, fly out, do some stuff, experience some things and always fly back. And here I am, like, I'm unable to fly home. And that, to me, was the biggest sort of, like, moment of understanding, like, you're in trouble. Mm. Brian, I, I think that that audio of him talking is so interesting on a number mm-hmm. of levels. Mm-hmm. One, I mean, you do, I think, hear his his pain and later he goes on to just reiterate his even his embarrassment and shame that he was like one of the only men on the train getting out because most of the men are staying in Ukraine to fight. And so there's, I think, understandably so, he feels some embarrassment and shame about that. There's another discussion, I think, to be had about why he was able to leave the position of privilege and power that he has simply by being a celebrity. But I, that said, you still feel the pain mm-hmm. in and the fear when he was there, ready to get out, wishing he wouldn't have come able to get out and still almost unable to verbalize some of the things that he's already seen and uh, unable to verbalize the pain he feels for his people. So again, this was another example of what we were talking about before. You're seeing the reality of war Mm -hmm. through the eyes of someone who was literally on the ground there now back in the States, safely sharing about it on social media on good morning America. That's sort of game changing uh, when it comes to the landscape of how we we interact with things around the world. It really is, because you wouldn't hear his story. You wouldn't hear other people's stories pre-social media. But um, and I'm glad to hear that story. I have to be honest, when I first heard his story, you know, there are a lot of news organizations that were reporting on it. I was like, he talked about the embarrassment of being the only guy in the mm-hmm. train. So I was like, then why'd you go? Yeah, I, agree. I didn't realize this was his home. Like he is yeah. relocated to L.A. Yeah. And so yeah. that does change things a little bit. Um but yeah, I, I I don't know. Like in some ways, Aubrey, um, social media and other things makes it feel like you understand what's going on, while at the same time realizing how much you don't understand what's going on. Isn't that true? And just in our yeah. break, I was looking at Twitter and saw a video of people fleeing their town, and I'm like, mm. I have no concept of what that would Mm-mm, be like. Absolutely. Like I feel for those people, but I'm like, if somebody came. To the town that I lived in and was like, listen, yeah. uh, the the Russians are advancing across the mid. I'd be like, excuse like, what? I don't know what to do. Like, yeah. what are you supposed to do? And so uh, on the one hand, it is important for us to look at this and go, OK, uh, you know, I can I can see what's going on. I can hear from their president. I can understand. But in some ways, it almost feels like voyeurism, too, because it's like. And I can't do anything for right, you. Right. I can't help you. I can't do. And so it is a tension, but it does. It, at the very least, it allows it forces us not to ignore 
not to go, oh, you know, other side of the world, what do I have to care? But yeah. instead it forces yeah. us to be prayerful. It forces us to donate, to yeah. do whatever it is we can. Yeah. Speaking of that, Brian, I, I felt that same instinct, like as you're watching this year, like, what can I do? And of course, you and I talk a lot about the power of prayer and we still would say, get on your knees and pray mm-hmm. that God changes the heart and the mind of Putin now. Um, you can also go to an organization like worldrelief.org slash respond, and they um, have a place where you can give and help Ukrainians right now. You can give monthly, you can give once. There are um, other organizations, Josiah Venture, Doctors Without Borders, uh, UNICEF, of course, humanitarian organizations all around the world that are doing what they can mm-hmm. to assist people in Ukraine and people fleeing Ukraine as well. So if you feel compelled to give these are meaningful ways you can actually sort of put your money where your mouth is right. and help support our brothers and sisters who are in such, such pain yeah. right now. How do you think we tell people to pray? How would you tell people to pray? Mm. If you don't know anybody over there, which is probably 99% of us. Yep. And how do we pray for the, for what's going on over there? Yeah. I, I love that question, Brian, because I do think sometimes when it feels so overwhelming, I mean, this is an actual war. Mm-hmm. You can kind of go, well, what am I supposed to pray for? I think we pray for a swift end to war, period. We Again, we pray that God God can change the hearts and minds of kings just like he can change the course of a river. The Bible mm-hmm. says that. So we can pray that God would change the heart and the mind of Putin. I think we also pray for the strength for the Ukrainian people that are under siege. Continue to pray for Zelensky's leadership and the people around that are like holding mm-hmm. him up. And um, I, I would, you know, where your heart is tender, like earlier in the show, we talked about these precious kids that are in the hospital and being moved, evacuated by train. Pray for the mamas, pray for the kiddos that are being separated from their dads, mm-hmm. dads who are staying and fighting and sending their families, you know, away. They might not ever see each other again. And I think the biggest thing of all is pray that the spirit of God would be so present with people. Yeah. And And I think the beautiful thing about prayer is. We can trust that God is doing something. It may not feel like it when we watch the footage. It's so devastating, but we can have faith that the Lord is on the ground in Ukraine right now because God promises us that he is with those who are suffering. He is not deistic. He is not distant. He is not a puppet master. God sort of like pulling strings. Mm -hmm. He is there in the midst somehow doing something new in in something that feels so devastating. So it is important to pray that God's will would be done on earth on in Ukraine as it is in heaven. Yep. And we can trust that God is in control and God is good. Yeah. Even when stuff seems out of yeah. control. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Brian. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about the difference between hope and faith. Is there a difference? We'll find out more when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. I'm digging these tunes that we're they listening are. to right now. So yep. some good liking this. All right, Brian, you and I are pastors. So, of course, one of the things that we talk about quite a bit as pastors is faith. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say that you uh, most of what you're preaching about may not be about the topic of faith, but mm-hmm. certainly is under the umbrella of faith in Jesus Christ? Correct. Yeah, we want to see people come to faith. We want to see people growing in their faith. Mm-hmm. We want to see people persevering in their faith in hard times. We want to see people sharing their faith. So absolutely, it is kind yeah. of a, a common thread. And if I were to ask you or someone to come to your church and to say, what is faith? Like to find faith for me, what would you say? Mm. Man, that's difficult. Mm-hmm. 
Which it shouldn't be, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. sound like it'd be difficult, but then I'd encourage people out there, like, define faith. Like, you know what it is. Yeah. So, well, I'll give you some words that come to mind for me. One is belief. Like, yeah. belief in something. You know, the Bible yeah. talks about belief in something I can't see. Yes. So, there's a faith there. So, I, I would go with that. There's also a belief that God is going to uh, do what he said he's going to do. Mm-hmm. So, even if things are bad right now, I have faith uh, that God is still on the throne, that this and that. So those are kind of some of the things that come to mind. What do you, how would you define, man, that's hard. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to say, how would you define, it's like saying, how would you define love? And you're yeah. like, I know it, but. I, I feel like sort of a bad pastor right now, but I've got on the tip of my tongue that verse, like faith is the evidence of things hoped for. I'm, mm-hmm, I'm not mm-hmm. saying it right. So I'm, I'm feeling a little bit like you, like a little, little tongue tied when it comes to this, but I, I, I suppose faith is the belief that God is real mm-hmm. and is going to do what he says he's going to do through Jesus. Mm-hmm. Would you also say, is faith, a, is faith a spiritual gift for some people? I do believe that. Yeah. So I think faith is required for all. Yeah. Um, you know, this kind of firm belief, this this strong conviction, this belief. Uh, I would say faith is is necessary for all. But I do. We've all met the people who have a depth of faith. Absolutely. That you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's I aspire to that. Yeah. There's something special going on yeah. there. So I think some people have a faith that outpaces what normal faith is. Yeah, I agree that they seem to have just like a more unwavering faith than other people. Okay, Brian, here's another pastoral question for you. Often when we talk about faith, we talk about hope, kind of faith and hope going uh, hand in hand. How would you define hope? Man, you make me different. First of all, we got through defining faith without singing the George Michael song. Oh man, should we go back and do that? <laughs> you should. Uh, I would define hope more as you know, kind of an expectation mm-hmm. or a belief that mm-hmm. something is going to happen. Yeah, that's right. Great. Like it's kind of forward looking. There's expectation, desire. Uh, it feels more future focused. Um, faith feels more bedrock to me. Hope is like I hope to. Uh, you know, I hope to get this job or yeah. I hope to whatever. Uh, so sometimes we use words like I hope Jesus returns, but mm-hmm. no, I have faith that Jesus mm-hmm. is going to return. That feels more uh, deep. There's more depth. Yeah. There's more rock solidness to it. So that that would be my difference. You know what I'm going to ask you? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, how would, you define how hope? would I define hope? I think I would say the same thing. Like you're hoping for something, mm-hmm. right? A certain outcome to your prayers or a certain door to open or like you said for jesus to return like you're it, it, maybe future is what i'm thinking mm-hmm, like yeah mm-hmm. like something in the future I, I guess that's how i define hope but we don't often try to um define define these because they feel like just language we understand especially mm-hmm. as pastors probably we need to do a better job of it interestingly <laughs> here's why i bring this up relevant magazine there was an article by phil baker talking about this very question and he argues that there is a difference between hope and faith, okay. which I think you and I would agree with, but maybe we didn't parse it out as well as he did. And this is so interesting. So here's what he says. Um, faith is for the now. Hope, on the other hand, is always forward thinking. He goes on to say every mention of hope in the Bible points to something in the future. Mm. It's almost as if hope is the future tense of faith. Oh, I like that. I know. I thought I that like was that. so good. That was like very, uh, very tweetable. Yeah. 
Um, he talks about, so I don't know if you know about Schrodinger's cat. I only know about Schrodinger's cat from the show The Big Bang Theory. Never heard of it. Okay, so there's a, there's a physicist named Erwin Schrodinger. 1935, he created a thought experiment where a cat was placed in a box with a vial of poison. This is oh. a little bit disturbing. To set to break open at a random time, it would kill the cat. Okay. Since the box was closed, the outside world would not know if the cat was dead or alive until the box was opened. Schrodinger postulated that in the world of physics, more than one reality can exist simultaneously. Therefore, the cat could be considered dead and alive at the same time. (laughs) It's not until the box is open that the state of the cat can be determined. Oh, I see. He goes on to say, this is Phil Baker now, if faith were applied to this... The cat would be either dead or alive before the box was open. Faith would inform us which reality we occupy. And if your faith is in the author of, re- of reality, you don't have to peek inside the box to know. That's a little bit of a complicated way, I think, of saying, like, we can hold paradox, we can have faith now, but also hope in the future. That's don't right. you think sort of this already not yet reality? Did they kill the cat? Or does not experiment not actually happen? Was this more of a theoretical? I think it was probably more theoretical. I'd hope he didn't kill cats, but I'm not exactly so, sure. I think that's a good way to put it. Hope is like, you know what? Uh, I've got these dreams for the future or I know what I can hold on to, but there's a way it's got to get there. But faith is like, all right, I'm anchored in my faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Like that is my firm foundation to use biblical language. That is where my uh, everything is 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 just um, it's built upon. And in that faith, I have hope that, um, you know, God always works out for the good or these other things. Like I have hope in scripture. So I think that's great to just call hope the future tense of faith. I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting thing to me, too. And I I I think part of me wonders why it matters. But I think it's I think it's the concept that we can if we're going through a hard time in life or if we're going through just sort of like we've lost our lust for life a mm. little bit like life feels just a little meh right now we can still have faith now that we will uh, like experience the presence of God in the land of the living the goodness of God in the land of the living as David talks about but we can have hope that even though it is hard right now, like there's a better story being written over us. And this is, again, this already not yet concept that we've talked That's about right. before. That's right. Um, at the other reality is I, I think sometimes um, we can get stuck. We can get stuck in our present day, like wanting to see God's kingdom come to earth now, mm. which is such a good thing and so beautiful and so wonderful that sometimes I think we do forget to have an eternal perspective and have that hope in what will come one day. And so I guess, you know, it, it does seem kind of crude to talk about the cat being dead or alive, but <laughs> both can be true. The cat can be dead and the cat can be alive. You can be struggling. You can still have That's faith funny. and hope in the future. I think one of the verses we were searching for here, Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for Amen. and assurance about what we do not see. So that's kind of the idea. And the beauty of this is that we can have faith and hope uh, those are both gifts of God, and we can hold on, and uh, and it is good. So faith and hope, uh, major, major ingredients of who we are Absolutely. as Christ followers. Well, coming up next, we are joined by a good friend of the show, Bob Smetana. He's a national reporter for Religion News Service. We're going to talk to him about uh, the baseball situation, Brian, Ed Litton at the SPC, and lots of other interesting topics when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're thrilled to be joined by friend of the show, religion reporter for the Religion News Service. That's Bob Smetana. Bob, thanks for joining us again today. We always love having you. Oh, glad to be here. But one of the first articles that we want to talk to you about is one that I know is close to my co-host Brian's heart, and it is about what's happening in the baseball world right now. You wrote an interesting article relating that to organized religion. Can you tell us what's going on? Yeah, so I, you know, I noticed last week that the um, baseball canceled opening day in the first two um, games of the season, and they've been on a lockout, and it doesn't look like it's going to get resolved anytime soon. Mm. And I just started thinking, at the same time, the United Methodists uh, canceled one of their big meetings. Mm. They've been meeting so that they can... Uh, resolve some differences, and basically there's going to be a schism in the, the United Methodist Church. And so the meeting was to talk about the schism, and it hasn't been, they haven't been able to meet for a couple of years because of COVID. And I've been following some of the Methodist fighting, and so I thought, oh, these two groups have the same problem. Yeah, interesting. Audience. They have a product on the field that people are less interested in, and instead of kind of dealing with their biggest problems, they're fighting with each other. Mm. So that's kind of just the article, that, the, you know, you have a connect with younger people, you have kind of shrinking audience, you have a product that people are less engaged with, you have increased competition for people's attention, and instead of getting at those things, you have two groups that are fighting with, you know, with, who are kind of consumed with internal fighting and assuming that when they get done with the fighting, someone will care. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Bob, this is a painful article for me because I know you're a diehard Red Sox fan. I'm a Mets guy, and uh, I just baseball is like the highlight of my year. The opening day, this is killing me, yeah. and so I, I know it is uh, you as well. But for the church, uh, you you likened it from the field of dreams, right? If you build it, they will come. Yeah. That's kind of been baseball's thing all the time. If we just roll the ball back out, people are going to come. And as you mentioned. It's kind of an attitude that churches have often taken. So what's uh, if churches come to accept we can no longer do the if we build it, they will come. What's the alternative? What what should churches and denominations be doing? Well, one, one thing I think is to think about the cost of the internal feuding. So I, a couple of years ago, I talked with a bishop in um, Nashville, in Tennessee. And at the time, the in the Episcopal Church, the only uh, kind of area that had not Trump, and they were actually grown was in Tennessee, and, and the bishop had really gone to you know, great lengths to try and keep the internal feuding to a minimum. And basically said, you know, come fight with us is not a strategy for growth. Mm. So I think that's one part of it. I think mm. another part of it is just to realize that the world around us has changed, mm. and that if, if you're going to connect with people, you, you're going to have to begin to think, how do I look outside my doors? How do I focus on finding, connecting with people? It doesn't mean you change your doctrine, but it means you realize that you can't assume that people. So in the, in the past, it was like baseball. So I became a baseball fan because my grandfather was a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. He passed it on to my mom, mm-hmm. and I became a baseball fan. My kids do not care about baseball. <laughs> and I took them to games, right? So they're not going to care about the game. It's just not their thing. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's. The same thing. And, you know, baseball, it's not just about the game. It's about family and identity and kind of the joy in life. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that you could church me to think about, too, is, is how do you engage people that are 
So, so when, when people come to church in the past, they've come because their parents brought them. Mm-hmm. Most of the folks who went to a church had grown up in church. Their parents had taught them the faith. They, so they're already primed to accept the Christian faith, right? So that, uh, and then you brought in people from the outside, but, but the kind of main driver of the long-term sustainability was people passing the faith on from one generation to another. And so that doesn't happen as much now. People mm-hmm. have fewer kids. And those kids don't often accept the faith. So, so now you have to think, uh, we have to convince people who are not interested in this that we matter and that this is something that should be important to you. That's a lot more work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then if you, at the same time, are feuding you, people are leaving. If you're, if you're trying to replace long-time either fans or long-time church members with new people, that's not a one-for-one. Mm. Um, replacement, right? People who walk out the door, you're not going to have lots of more people coming back in. You're going to have to spend a lot of time and energy bringing in new people. So I think sometimes folks think, well, if you don't like it here, you should just leave mm-hmm. yeah. the church. Yeah. Or you think that these church feuds, which are often about really important issues, but I don't think people necessarily think, oh, what we, the decisions we make, the decisions we make on how we conduct our disagreement, on how we move forward, will have effects on people. And you mm-hmm. can't think that, you know, and some, you know, some congregations that are very big and attractional have a big back door and a big front door. But most churches have a pretty good-sized back door mm-hmm. and a very small front door. <laughs> yeah. True, true. So, you know, you can't affect the churn to, um, that just when people leave, that new people are going to show up. You're going to have right. to spend a lot of time. And, and you have to think, oh, how do we spend time integrating and bringing in new people uh, and and if you spend all your time thinking about arguing over doctrine or ecclesiology right. or a whole, one of a whole number of social issues, those are all important, right? Yeah, yeah. Not to dissuade them, but you want to, I think, make sure that there's something left for people to come to when mm. the fights are over. Yeah. Mm. For me, you know, and this may, you know, neither baseball or organized religion is going to disappear tomorrow. Right. But it's the long term you have to worry about. Yeah. Oh, so thought provoking. So much for us to think about, Bob. Um, I, I want to take a little bit of a turn here and move to a different area of the church. That's the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, area that you cover quite a bit. I feel like every time you're on the show is what we're talking to you about. But I was really surprised to read an article that you wrote on March 3rd that um, Ed Litton has announced that he will not be running for a second term as president of the SBC or this. Yeah, the Southern Baptist Convention. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. So Lytton was elected last. So the Southern Baptist Convention president, they basically have they have a one year term, but from in most cases the president runs twice. Mm. It's two year term, and it's mostly a, a ceremonial post, and then it's a bully pulpit. You go around, you talk about the church. They don't have as many as much administrative um, power, but they do elect. They basically appoint people on the committees who appoint people to lead the. The, the convention. So it's important. And it's also very important in setting the agenda. So Lyndon was elected last year in kind of a very contentious election um, over they're having these fights over CRT mm-hmm. and yeah. racism and woke. So all this kind of controversy, which will become common in lots of uh, places. So he gets elected. And right after he gets elected, it turns out that he had been, he'd given some sermons on Romans that he had borrowed some material from the previous president, mm-hmm. uh, J.D. Greer, and not 
and he talked to JD and said, I'm going to, I'm going to use some of your sermons and JD said, great. But then he didn't tell his congregation and he wasn't careful in, um, fighting it. Mm-hmm. So then that found out, then it was a big controversy. People wanted to step down. And so he talked about, that's one reason he's not running again. I think he felt like another election would be contentious. Yeah. He's also been working very hard on the, there's going to be a report coming out in their, their June meeting about effective use investigation. And it's really a kind of a high level look at how leaders in the denomination responded to abuse, mm. and abuse survivors. So that's a very, that's going to be a very telling and powerful moment. Yeah. And he's been working on that. He didn't want to be distracted from that. And then he's really been working hard on racial reconciliation. And one, one thing he said during the a conversation that was, I think really helpful is that he, he talked about, you know, that there's, the SBC, which was founded by slaveholders, had really supported Jim Crow, has really changed quite a bit. It's mm. actually much, it's more diverse than more, some more progressive denominations. So there's yeah. more, you know, it's more diverse in the SBC than, say, in the Episcopal Church or the Evangelical Lutheran Church or the United Methodist. Mm. But um, as, a, as the church has become more diverse, there's been more disagreements because, especially white Christians and black Christians, see the state of race relations in the U.S. very differently. Most black Christians say we have, still have racial problems. Yeah. You know, most white Christians say we don't have Yeah, right, right. So, so he, but his point was that we've got to work, you know, the SEC has to work on this because if you want to reach a diverse country, mm-hmm. you're going to have to have a diverse group of Christians reaching out. Absolutely. And if those folks are, and that, that country is divided over race. So you're going to have to work on this issue yeah. in order to fulfill the bigger mission. So um, it was, and he also talked a bit about getting uh, exposed, is what he said, hmm. with the sermon preparation. Yeah. And he, oh, he, had right. Been, right. He, had, he had said, I'm, he had apologized for it and said that he should have been more, um, should have given credit and hmm. that he was wrong. That hmm. he made, you know, he, isn't, he admitted that this was wrong. I should have done this. Hmm. Yeah. But he also said that, you know, he learned from that and that it was a chance to, he said he was, he was gracious, grateful for the, the lessons he learned in being exposed and having done something wrong and said, oh, this, I need to change this okay. and making a change. Okay. So it, it's, it, it is rare to get church leaders to say they did something wrong. That's right. Uh, I don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Not good at it. I mean, none of us wants to say you were wrong, right? But church leaders don't, because they don't feel like, they feel like if they say they did something wrong, it undermines their leadership. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It was it was a surprise for him to say that uh, he wasn't going to run again. Um, but I think that you know the SBC because it's such a large denomination and has such influence, um, it's important for us to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that it, such an important story. Such an important story, and yeah. and a lot for the rest of us church leaders to learn. You can check out yeah. Bob's articles at religionnews.com and connect with Bob on Twitter at Bob Smetana. Bob, we always love having Thanks, you. Bob. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, great to be here. And thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.